what can I do to make sure that my kids grow up to be good human beings? And that just suddenly felt like really pressing to me. Whereas I used to kind of worry about like, oh God, are they going to get into college? And, you know, um, <laughs> are, are they assertive enough? And all these things. I was like, oh no, what I really want is for my kids to make the world a better place and just be really good people. And so that was really the big inspiration for the book. Hey there, welcome to Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where we are just trying, with your help, to make the world 10% nicer by every means necessary. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant, and today's guest is here to help you ensure that your kids, or your friends' kids, turn out to be decent human beings. Melinda Wenner Moyer is the author of the brand new book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens. I mean, let's, let's, let's be real. If we're talking about making the world a nicer place, is there anything more impactful we can do than to make sure that our replacements are way nicer, way better than us? Yeah, probably not. Melinda is a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine and a regular contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, and other national magazines and newspapers. She's a faculty member in the Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program at NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. She was the recipient of the 2019 Bricker Award for Science Writing and Medicine, and her work was featured in the 2020 Best American Science and Asia Writing Anthology. Moyer's work has won first place prizes in the Awards for Excellence in Healthcare Journalism, the Folio Eddy Awards, the Annual Writing Awards of the American Society of Journalists and Authors. It has also been shortlisted for a James Beard Journalism Award, a National Academy of Science Communications Award, and a National Magazine Award. Whew! Had a big block of text there I had to get through. All right, so <laughs> in other words, Melinda has some serious bona fides, which is why her book is awesome, funny, helpful, and meticulously researched. We're going to talk about a lot here. We're going to talk about how to talk about race with your kids, this, this sort of interplay between academic success and emotional success and prioritizing which one. We'll talk about screen time. You ever struggled, struggled with screen time with your kids? Uh, the answer is yes, if you have kids. Um, theory of mind, bullying, uh, building emotional literacy, uh, what you can do to promote things like emotional learning in your school, some action items for you. Just a lot. It's a great conversation. But, but before we turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world and drop in to nice work with Melinda Wenner Moyer, got a little special super special brand new thing to announce and that you're going to get to enjoy. You know what that thing is? Do you? Some of you might. It's a new podcast theme song. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I'm excited about it. Seriously, if you have a podcast, the theme song's a big deal. A lot of podcasts just buy a little snippet online of um, canned music, and that's cool. Uh, some others have friends record. Some others, you know, get music and then they uh, license it, right? We did the Friends Record. Great band that was featured on the podcast before, Mitty Matilda. Well, Logan of Mitty Matilda did our theme song and it's really really cool and this is the debut so normally we use just like 10 or 15 seconds in the beginning right but i'm gonna play the whole thing i'm gonna play the whole darned theme song and i hope you love it i really do okay i'm like yeah i know these are the things that podcasters get excited about just bear with me please don't skip it just listen and then as soon as it's done we will drop in to nice work with melinda wenner moyer okay here we go 
Debut. Woo! International debut. Melinda, Melinda Wenner Moyer, thank you for being on the podcast today. Hi. Hi, you're so welcome, Todd. Thanks for having me. Where are you right now, other than in a home somewhere, which I can see? <laughs> yes, with dogs behind me. Um, I am in Cold Spring, New York. So that's like 60 miles north of New York City in the Hudson Valley. Everybody's north of New York City. I right? know. Yeah, basically. Nobody lives south. And everybody calls it upstate when really it's, we're not upstate until you get up into like Buffalo and Rochester and stuff. But um, it is pretty up here and it's apple picking season. So uh, people love to come up and go to the orchards (laughs) in this time of year up here. There's so many great little towns out there. I think, at least I know I do. And a lot of my friends here in California, we really sort of romanticize and idealize the upstate New York communities. Yeah. You're like, oh, wouldn't it be great someday to get out there? And you have seasons too. <laughs> oh, we have seasons. We have so many leaves on the ground and so many colors right now. It actually is like the, it's the, kind of the best time of year here, honestly. It's so pretty. LA in October is interesting because it's absolutely the same as LA in June <laughs> or <laughs> January. Yeah. yeah. No, it's the, the seasons are here. They're just more subtle. The longer you're here, the more you, you pick up on them. Um, and I found like, in the wintertime, one of the tells, you know, it's not really the, the leaves or anything so much. It's that when you look up at the billboards, there's like Christmas movies <laughs> being advertised. You're like, oh, it's obviously winter, you know. So, <laughs> That's how you tell what time of year it is by looking at is, the billboards. Oh, wow. Um, so, boy, there's so much to talk about with you, with your new book. Before that, let's just try a new thing here. Because the Super Nice Club, our goal is to make the world a little nicer. nicer. That's the starting point. Where would you start? Where does your nicer world begin? Oh, wow. Yeah, that is a big question. Okay. All right. One of my big things that is also a theme in my book (laughs) is that feelings are good and even bad feelings are good and okay. And we should tolerate them and we should have them and we should express them. Um, And this is something that parents, I think, often really have trouble with because we want to rescue our kids from their negative feelings. We want to tell our kids who are crying, like, it's okay, calm down, not a big deal, you're okay, stop 
you know, stop freaking out, not a big deal. All these things that we say when our kids are getting upset, which we do because we want them to feel better. And, you know, we don't like them feeling sad or mad or scared or whatever. Um, But actually, like, acknowledging our kids' feelings and our own feelings, validating them, talking about them, there's a lot of research that links doing that with, like, the development of kindness and generosity and helpfulness, actually, which I thought was fascinating in the research and kind of counterintuitive. Um, But Mm -hmm. that is, I mean, and it's kind of a simple thing, though, that you can do. Like, just let your kids have their feelings, acknowledge them, you know, have your own bad feelings and talk about them sometimes. And, And those things are all really, really good. Yeah, I like that. I, that's a great place to start. And uh, definitely a great place to make, like you said, nicer kids. If we're going to have a nicer world, that's probably the fastest way we can achieve it is by having the, the next generation kind of save our asses. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it is, as I said, it's counterintuitive, but like there is sort of a pathway that explains it, which I feel like might be helpful to, to explain a little bit because otherwise people might be like, why would feelings have anything to do with helpfulness or like compassion. But um, so just briefly, when, when we talk to kids about feelings, when we let them have their feelings, you know, they're becoming more emotionally literate then, and they're starting to understand Mm -hmm. feelings more and recognize them easier and just sort of figure out what kinds of feelings look a certain, you know, what does sadness look like? What does anger look like, etc. And that's really important for kids to be able to um, recognize in other people how they're feeling. So, you know, if you, if you, want to help a friend or you want to be generous to a friend, it really helps to be able to read their body language, read their expressions on their face and say, oh, wow, my friend's really upset or my friend's really sad. Like, what could I do to make them feel better? So that recognition of emotions and that sort of literacy is kind of the first step towards being able to reach out and help somebody else, make them feel better, um, you know, and and respond to them in sort of like a a helpful, nurturing way. Um, And it's all part of this skill that's called theory of mind, which is a skill I talk about a lot in the book, which is like essentially the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And talking about feelings is like the first step towards developing that skill of putting, being able to put yourself in other people's shoes and recognizing other people's feelings. And that is, as we see in the research, really, really important for generosity and compassion and helpfulness. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, the the key word that I heard there was uh, literacy, you know, emotional literacy. And if you're it's a language. If you're telling your kids to not learn this language, you know, to suppress this language, uh, boy, they're not going to be able to read, right? And like you said, they're not going to be able to read body language. And body language skills are, are wildly important. And being able to get kids to learn that language early on is going to give them a wild advantage in, in the world. So yeah, it makes, makes a whole lot of sense to me. And I really wish that we would be uh, pushing for that more in, in education. Um, but we'll get to, we'll get to all that. We're there's so much to unpack in your book, and I really want to try to cover as much as we can. I'm holding up your book right now, everybody. Yay. You can't see that I'm holding up, but you can maybe hear the page sounds. I don't know. Can you? Yeah, I, I can probably hear. not. I just want you to know, <laughs> listeners, that I actually read the books that we have authors. Uh, I actually read the books that the authors write that are the guests on the Nice Work Podcast, which is why this book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Toss to Teens gets the super nice club money-back guarantee. If you've listened to this podcast a few times, you know that if you buy one of the books that we're talking about and you read it and you don't find it valuable, or maybe you're just cheap or broke or whatever, we'll buy it back from you. We'll buy it back from you at whatever price you paid. 
you know, uh, honor system here, and then we'll re-gift it to a member of the club. So just click on the links in the show notes, um, grab the book with no fear, no fear of wasting money, you know, maybe just your time, but you know, reading, reading is never a waste of time. So the book is How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. And it is, as a parent of three sons, I will tell you that I definitely found it valuable. So, Melinda, first of all, congratulations. This is your first book. It is. Right? Yeah. You've done a lot of writing and a lot of editing, um, but this is your first book. So, way to go. Thank you. It's got to feel good. Yeah. It's been really fun. It's been a ride. Yeah. I've, I've had a lot of fun. Thank you. So you're kind of a big deal, before we get into the book, in the science and medicine writing and editing world. Uh, You're well-known. You're a loved science writer. People say things like, Linda's my favorite scientific American writer. And there's there's like fan fan boys and girls for you. And I checked your website, which is, everybody, melindawennermoyer.com. Again, you can click on it. There's links and stuff. Uh, And you've won, I counted them up, took me a little bit, I think over 600 awards. Or maybe it was 1,600 or 3,000. I don't know, something like that, or 24,000 for writing and editing excellence. You've won a lot of awards, okay? Yeah, okay. <laughs> in the areas yeah. of, of science and medicine, mostly. And you've got a master's in science and health and environmental reporting from NYU. And what got you geeked out on science originally? Where did that start for you? Oh, yeah. You know, it was interesting because I really didn't like science in high school and middle school. I mean, I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't like, this is something that I want to be learning about for my whole life. Um, But then when I was in college, I randomly, I was actually majoring in music, (laughs) Uh, music composition. So it's kind of like writing. Um, And I took a, randomly took a class in um, a summer class in biology. And I was like, I'm just kind of want to know what this is all about. I don't really remember biology from high school. And I just fell in love with it. I thought, Hmm. I mean, I I don't know, like it was just fascinating to learn how, how like the body is put together. I was really interested in cell and molecular biology and like what goes on inside our, our bodies and what makes things happen in our brains and all these things. So at that point, that was like my junior year in college. And then I, I at that point, I declared a second major <laughs> and stayed for another two years and got a degree in cell and molecular biology. And it was really cool. Wow. Did you have a uh, like a professor that just made it happen, turned you on. You remember that? Or just, just the topic hit you at the right time? I mean, I, I did really like the lecturer I had for that class. He was just really upbeat and really smart. And, um, and I think that, I think that he did help, like his lectures really brought, brought this to life. Um, and then the labs I thought were really interesting. Um, and yeah. And then I started also reading like popular science magazines, like, um, New Scientist and Scientific American. And I thought, and that was kind of the bridge for me to science writing. Like at first I was like, do I want to be a scientist? And I actually worked in a couple of labs in college um, and really didn't like it. <laughs> I I was working in like a, a cancer biology lab where like, you know, the researcher had spent eight years studying one protein in like worms, you know, and I was Ooh, like, I don't think right. that's what I want to do. I'm, I get bored easily. I want to be able to do different things or I want to like learn about things and then learn about something else and then work on something else. And so, yeah, then I started reading um, science magazines and realized, oh, there's, there's people who are called science journalists and they learn about science and they interview scientists and then they write about it. And then when they're done with a piece, they can either write more about that topic or they can go on to a totally different topic and learn something completely new if they want. And that, I was like, that sounds amazing and really fun. And so that's kind of what led me down the path after college to science journalism. 
You know what I really love about that is that you didn't get turned on to your career path, or at least your first career path. You're still quite young um, until you were in college, right? And so often as parents, we're, you know, some of us get worried like, oh, my kid doesn't really know what they want to do and they're 14, right? Or they don't have a, a passion and they're not fully focused because we want our kids to just really be all in on one thing and know what they want. Uh, and I, I think that's a lot of pressure. You know, I think it's a lot of pressure on a kid. And that's what college is traditionally, a lot of it is about is, is experiencing a different world, a bigger world, a broader world, and getting turned on to things, right? So yeah. parents out there, if your kids still isn't fired up and don't know what they want to do by age nine, it's okay. <laughs> All right? It's okay. They they might just get turned on when they're 23 um, and go from there. Yeah, absolutely. It was actually after college when I, so I, I, after college, I worked briefly in a biotech company for a biotech company in sales. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. But I thought, oh, it's science adjacent. And then it was like two years later that I, I kind of realized like, oh, science journalism might be the home for me. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't know for like years after college what I wanted to do. So now you're turning the, your, your attention, at least for this book toward this intersection of science. I mean, even says science-based in the, in the title. Uh, health and child rearing. So when I was going through your book, and now this is the part where we're finally talking about the book listeners, because I know this is the part you're waiting for, because you want to learn how to have a kid not be an asshole, right? This is why I read the book. I first started taking notes in the spiral bound, like I always do for the podcast. But after a couple of chapters in, I had just like pages and pages of scribbles and a realization that we could do a podcast on every, like on every chapter, right? There's like, um, help me out here. Bullying, racism, sexism, screen time, education. There's just a lot in there. And each yeah. one of those is, is a lot to do. So let's just sort of bounce around here uh, and see what happens topic-wise, right? Yeah. And people, if there's something that uh, we didn't cover, <laughs> you know, it's great about that is you can go read the book. You can go read the book and get the rest of the details in there. So you have two kids. How old are they? Why did you write this book? Are either one of your kids assholes? Like, why? Why, why, why? Why are we talking right now? Yeah. So I have, yes, I have two kids. I have a 10-year-old uh, son and a 7-year-old daughter. Um, yes, they can absolutely be assholes. And in fact, I, I talk about in the book, well, two things. One is... The book is really like, it, the title is really more how to raise kids who don't grow up to be assholes as adults. Because I think, you know, kids, they, so much of social behavior, so much of what we consider good behavior is learned. It is, you know, based on cultural norms um, and, and all these things that are not innate at all. Um, and so I strongly believe like kids have to make mistakes in order to learn from them. They have to push against boundaries to figure out where they are. This is, and, and also, you know, their brains are very different from adult brains. And the part of the brain that is responsible for, you know, um, planning and rational thinking and impulse control, all those important things, things that are very important for like what we consider quote unquote, good behavior, those that that part of the brain responsible for those qualities doesn't fully develop until a person is 25. So there's also just like biological reasons why kids are going to sometimes act like assholes. <laughs> and so I think that's really important to keep in mind. Like this is not a book that's going to suddenly turn your two year old into a child who never cries or never has a tantrum. That is impossible. It is like biologically implausible, never going to happen. But it's generally strategies that um, research suggests, you know, helps kids develop 
um, values and um, the kinds of qualities that I think I consider to be, and I think a lot of other people consider to be really important to have as, you know, as grownups and as teens. Um, so yeah, anti-racism and anti-sexism and motivation too, and good self-esteem and getting along with others and all these things. Um, as for what motivated the book, this was probably almost three years ago now, gosh, almost exactly three years ago. <laughs> I was getting more and more frustrated by bad behavior that I felt like I was seeing around me. Um, I, there was a lot of, I felt like bad behavior at the hands of people who were in positions of political power. Um, there was also the Me Too oh. movement. <laughs> yeah, uh, not naving names. Um, there was also the Me Too, mo Me Too movement that had just exploded um, with all the sorts of allegations against people that, you know, beloved actors and, and other people. Um, and it just felt like, whoa, like what is going on with the world? And it, is it, is everything terrible now? Like, what are we going to do? And I, I, as a mom started thinking about my kids and I was like, first of all, what are they learning from this behavior? You know, are they're probably hearing about it or seeing it on TV or, you know, hearing other people talk about it. What are they learning? Um, and who are they going to become in light of all of this? Like, who are they going to become and how much control do I have over it? And what can I do to make sure that my kids grow up to be good human beings? And that just suddenly felt like really pressing to me. Whereas I used to kind of worry about like, oh God, are they going to get into college? And, you know, um, <laughs> are, are they assertive enough? And all these things. I was like, oh no, what I really want is for my kids to make the world a better place and just be really good people. And so that was really the big inspiration for the book. And I also, I have to say, when I kind of had that realization, I started looking at the research just to find out, was there research that would be helpful, um, that would help you know parents figure out what's sort of the best strategies to use. And I was surprised that there was a ton, um, as you know, from reading the book, like there is so much research out there and a lot of it is counterintuitive. And it's also not really, a lot of it's not been translated for a lay audience. So that's when I was like, oh, I can use my science journalism skills to bring this research to light, to help translate it. And, you know, maybe in doing so help other parents who are having the same kind of like crisis of conscience as parents and wanting to really just raise good people and build a better world through their kids. Yeah. And it, when I was reading, it struck me that you have the book, but then you also have a newsletter. In the, both the book and the newsletter, you're obviously consistently citing scientific studies right, to back your assertions. And some of these assertions are kind of bold, you know, that yeah, kids do see race, you know, and your kid may be a bully, a third of them are bullies, and you'd be surprised it might be your kid, right? And there are these different things. But some of the assertions that you make, you know, things like uh, homework in grade school might be ineffective and discriminatory. These, I would imagine, face knee-jerk reactions because they don't track with what many teachers and parents think they know to be true with their preferred worldviews. And this is something I see a lot, not just in parenting studies, but from climate to vaccines to diet and exercise, even, even to horoscopes, right? People seem to only really like science when it backs their preferred worldview and they junk it the moment it conflicts with that, right? They might say over here like, oh, you're not paying attention to climate science because you're such and such. But then on the other side, if science, you know, counters their preferred parenting style, it's out the window. So does that frustrate you at all? Do you hesitate in using or did you like science-based because you were afraid that people would kind of veer away from it? Science seems like such a, a strangely political word these days. Yeah. Yeah. No, it absolutely is. I mean, I certainly 
knew and expected that I would get pushed back, that there would be people who would be angry at some of what I was writing and very vehemently disagree with it. Because, uh, you know, I think parenting is a very emotional enterprise. Like we, you know, we think we're being rational, but but a lot of the times the way that we the way that we raise our kids, it's rooted in, you know, how we were raised as kids. It's rooted in so many things. And, and when especially when people push against something that we think was the right way to do something like we let's say, you know, with the race thing, if you are a parent, especially like if you're a white parent and you you've thought. I think it's best not to talk about race. I think that that helps my kid not become racist. And then you read that the research actually kind of says the opposite. Then you're going to get defensive and understandably so, right? Because you're like, I don't want to be told that what I'm doing may not be the most constructive thing. And so, you know, I certainly was prepared for that, a little bit worried (laughs) about it. Um, It's also one of the reasons that I really was trying to um, kind of weave my own sort of mistakes and vulnerability as a parent into the book to say, look, like, this is counterintuitive to a lot of us. Nobody is the perfect parent. Like, nobody does everything right. And that's okay. And that doesn't screw up your kids either. Like, you can make a gazillion mistakes as a parent, and your kids are still going to be fine. And also, some of those mistakes can be constructive, because you can, you know, take responsibility for those mistakes with your kids and and model, you know, making apologies in, in front of your kids and apologizing to your kids. And so I recognize that a parents are going to get upset sometimes by the things I'm, I'm writing because no matter what, they ha- probably haven't done all of the things I'm suggesting. And so they might feel defensive. Um, but B, it's also okay to not do all of these things. It's impossible to do everything right. Um, and so there's that sort of uh, message that I also wanted to get across. And yeah, I mean, in the end, though, I feel like sharing the research is valuable because even though it may not fit for every child and, you know, research is based on averages, um, I still think it's really helpful information. And, the, and you know, it's, it's convincing to me because what the research is really showing is that the strategies that I talk about are actually helping kids and helping them become more kind and compassionate and happy and all these things. So despite all the pushback I might get, I felt like this was doing a service. And despite all the anger that I might <laughs> arise in parents and get you know, in my inbox, I felt like this is worth it. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, I think you do a pretty good job of, of including quite a few caveats. Like, hey, just because this is the, the research doesn't mean that your child isn't, you know, an exception to the rule. And you, you also talk about how counterproductive it is for parents to uh, shame each other, to say, oh, your parenting style is crap and this and that, and just you know, to allow each other to work through their own process as parents. So I didn't read this as a screed on this is how you should raise your kid. I read it more as, hey, I'm presenting some ideas here to think about, and they're, they happen to be backed by science, but if it's not your jam, it's not your jam. So, you know, this book is not a, it reads fun, lighthearted, and it's, it's definitely approachable, and it doesn't sound judgmental at all, which it's really easy to feel, because I'm a parent, you know, when I was reading it, I didn't feel like I was being judged, but I did read it and go, oh man, maybe I need to be not such a, uh, a hard ass about screen time, for example. Right. Right. Um, Because my my concerns and fears around, you know, new fangled technology. And it's something that so many of us as parents are struggling with. Every parent talks about it. How many how much time are your kids spending on your screens and what do we do? And because they get addicted, they get like little junkies. And so the way you're writing about screen time, you don't really make so much of a recommendation about what anybody should do. You just say, look, here's what the latest observations are you know, you go do what you need to do. Right. 
Yes. Yeah. That I'm glad that that's how it came across. Cause, um, especially with screens, I think, you know, there is not one single, like one size fits all approach. Um, and there's a lot of things that we should keep in mind as we're thinking about screens to, to kind of view them more holistically in a way, because there's so much people can do on screens, right? You can be watching a violent movie or you can be like creating an app. <laughs> and those are, those couldn't be more different yet. They're both technically screen time. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that was a, there was a lot in that chapter in terms of like trying to pick apart all the things that you kind of have to keep in mind as a parent thinking about screen time. And that's kind of why I was like, all right, I'm going to treat this in a sort of view from <laughs> 10,000 feet way. Like let's, let's unpack some of this. Let's, let's, help uh, you know figure out what's what and um and also like here's some general strategies based on the research that seems to help yeah and also just you tend to make it clear and this just seems so obvious but we forget it because as parents we're so busy just getting things together that at the end of the day communication is a huge part of any one of these issues it's like learning how to communicate with your kids and being okay with communicating your kids around issues that can be sticky for some people, like race and like uh, sex, sexuality, gender issues, especially in a world where these things are that the cultural commentary is changing so quickly. You know, we're, we're all becoming literate and illiterate at the same time. We're all putting our feet in our mouths and like, well, yesterday you said it was okay to say that. And now that acronym is different and God, you know. Totally. So we're all screwing it up. And like you say, it's okay to screw it up with your kids. Don't worry about nailing it and getting the script just right. Let them learn with you. Absolutely. Uh, and that's something I really appreciate in your book too. One thing that poked out to me, um, cause you mentioned race a minute ago, was that uh, research shows that children do see race. They do see that. They're not colorblind. How is that? And what does that mean for us as parents? Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of those really counterintuitive findings where I think a lot of um, white parents especially think, and it's very well-meaning, like, if I don't talk about race, if I don't if I don't single out skin color, if I just don't refer to it, then my kids just aren't really going to see it. Like they're going to be colorblind. They're not going to care about it. And you kind of think like, it'll be kind of like eye color or hair color. Like it'll just be you know, a characteristic that doesn't matter and our kids won't won't make a big deal out of it. And and it's completely understandable why we would think that's the case. But what the research suggests is actually pretty much the opposite. And I can kind of unpack and explain why. Um, but yeah, there's studies that, that show that even from the age of three months, babies are able to discern different skin colors and they actually spend more time, they prefer looking at pictures of adults who share the skin color of their caregivers. So they can absolutely tell the difference. Um, and they're actually already like, like making choices um, based on it. And so as kids get older, I think one thing that's another theme of my book and that's really important to keep in mind is that kids are kind of like little detectives. They are always looking around the world trying to figure out what's important. You know, what do I need to be paying attention to? Um, What are the social categories that matter? I mean, this is like a really big part of childhood is sort of figuring out how the world works. And so they are looking around and they are noticing that, you know, a lot of characteristics don't really seem to matter, like hair color and eye color, like nobody really cares. But they notice that race seems really important because they can see, because it is very obvious if we look, that there is a very salient racial hierarchy in our society. This also exists with gender, by the way, which, but it's slightly different, but um, we, you know, so kids see, wow, like, a lot of famous people, a lot of politicians, all but one president has been white. 
And that's interesting. They notice that and, and they, they see, you know, that there's like de facto segregation happening. There's different communities that are made comprised of people of, you know, different colored skin. And they see sometimes even in their own schools that there's this kind of segregation happening. Um, and it, to them, you know, this is something that looks really important um, because there's like a power differential here. Uh, they see that, you know, white people tend to have more power and prestige and wealth and all of these things that they, they see as important. Um, and if we aren't there as parents providing an explanation for this hierarchy and explaining that racism <laughs> played a big role in creating this hierarchy, um, then kids are going to try to figure it out for themselves. And the problem is that when you are faced with something like this and you want the simplest explanation for it, the simplest explanation that a kid is going to make is, is oh, you know, maybe white people are just better or smarter or more powerful intrinsically in some way. Because that's the easiest way to explain that hierarchy. This is the key reason why we need to be talking to kids about racism. Um, and also just like communicating to them that, it's okay to talk to us about race because one of the things they also notice when they see this huge hierarchy and they see also that we are not talking about it and that their teachers are not talking about it. They're like, Oh, this is like extra titillating and important. Then, you know, there's something taboo about this. There's something like my mom and dad don't want me to know, which means it's probably like really interesting and important. And so we make it kind of worse by not talking about it. Um, so what we want is really to, you know, encourage our kids if they have questions, if they're like, why does that lady's skin look different than ours, that we can actually be the people that they come to and we can give them a calm and sort of not shaming answer to them. You know, sometimes as parents, we when our kids ask us questions about race, our, our reaction is to be like, don't talk about that. That's bad. Don't, you can't say that. That's mean. And we kind of like shame them and say like, this is not a some, you know, something that we want to talk about. And that just kind of makes it worse. So this is why it's much better to actually have those conversations, as you said, and sort of normalize having conversations about this. I absolutely agree. And it doesn't have to be easy, folks. It doesn't have to no. be, uh, just just, just do it. And then if you feel like I didn't quite get it right, guess what? You can do it again at dinner the next night and then the next night and keep having the conversations. Um, so I think what would help, and you touched on it earlier briefly, um, but let's just, I want you to really, if you can, get across, explain the theory of mind, because I think it might help a lot of parents out there who aren't familiar with it feel better about their kids' behavior, especially, of course, really young kids. Do you mind just kind of shedding some light on theory of mind? Yeah. So theory of mind is a skill that children develop um, later in childhood, usually, um, which is the ability to take another person's perspective, to put yourself in someone else's shoes, and to kind of be able to recognize that other people can have different feelings as you, different experiences from you, and different sort of just perspectives in general than you. Um, and it's actually, I mean, it sounds like it's an easy thing and, you know, because we as, as adults can do this fairly well, most of us anyway, um, but it's really a hard skill to develop as kids and it takes a lot of time. And so one of the things that happens when kids don't have really well-developed theory of mind skills, and this is completely normal, is bullying. So what I was, one thing I was really surprised to find out about when I dug into the research on bullying is that there are a lot of kids who engage in bullying behavior, unkind behavior, who actually don't recognize that what they're doing is unkind, that it's hurting someone else. Um, they, you know, when there, when there've been studies done and kids have been asked, you know, if, if, 
a kid says this to another kid, you know, does that hurt that kid's feelings? They found that kids who, who engage in bullying behaviors at school, those are the kids who really have trouble understanding that, like, yes, calling someone a name is hurtful and it's going to make them feel bad. They really sometimes... They just don't make that connection. And it could be as well that, you know, they kind of think like, oh, we're having fun. It's it's funny. I think a lot of kids, um, you know, they, they think, oh, it's just harmless teasing. Everybody's having fun. And they don't recognize, no, the people that you're teasing actually aren't having fun. You know, they're actually hurting a lot. And so, but this all really requires that skill of theory of mind. And some kids develop it later than others. And a lot of the strategies I suggest in my book are, are um, kind of built on the idea of, of um, building theory of mind, um, of, you know, helping kids develop it faster, because that's when you start seeing more compassionate behavior and more empathy. Um, but it's also completely normal for kids to have trouble with this and to not recognize that what they're doing might be hurtful or that, you know, what they're saying might be unkind. I think another thing that we do that's kind of related to this is we assume when our kids say something mean or do or do something that is like politically un- incorrect or, or or rude that we that they know what they're doing that they let excuse me we we start that over. <laughs> um, Sometimes what happens with um, kids who say something rude or, you know, do something politically incorrect or, or you know, s- just say something that's unsavory is we as parents sometimes assume that they know exactly what they're doing, um, that they understand the meaning behind what they're saying. And a lot of times they just, you know, they've heard that phrase somewhere and they repeat it and they don't recognize that it's rude. And this happened with my own kid. I remember when my son was like seven, he came down the stairs and he started speaking in like a fake Chinese accent. And I was like you know, all these alarm bells went off in my head, like, oh, my God, this is this is so wrong. Like, oh, oh, you know, my kid, what what the hell is he doing? He's making fun of Chinese people like this is terrible. And then I kind of I remembered having read the, the research and talked to research about this researchers about this. And I kind of took a breath and said, like, what are you what, what, what are you doing? And, you know, and he, he had no idea, like he didn't even realize that, you know, what he was doing. Um, and and I'd kind of jumped to this conclusion that he was doing this on purpose to make fun of the specific group of people. And that was absolutely not what he intended. But at the same time, I used that as an opportunity to kind of talk to him about, well, it sounded like you were trying to do an accent. And, and here's why sometimes that's, you know, actually kind of offensive. And it sounds like you're making fun of people. And we just have to be really careful about that. Um, but anyway, so there's, I guess, two things there that I was trying to say, which is that um, a lot of times kids really struggle to, to put themselves in other people's shoes. And that's totally normal. And, um, and also that sometimes we assume that our kids are, are intending more than they actually are. And they just really kind of don't know what they're doing. That makes sense. So what are some of the things it does? It does. What are some of the things that, that parents can do to uh, foster theory of mind in their kids? So one of the great things um, that it's very simple too, once you kind of, once you kind of learn how to do it um, is to always connect your child's behaviors and choices and even your requests for them with their effects on other people. So what do I mean by that? Um, like, one example I give in my book is um, when I ask my kids to clean up their Legos, I, I don't just say, please pick up your Legos. I will say, please pick up your Legos or else I'm going to step on one and it's really going to hurt. 
Um, and, and likewise, mm. you know, when, when my child does something that, you know, might bother someone else or hurt someone else, instead of just saying, don't do that, or that's not nice or stop, I will kind of go that extra step and give an explanation for why I'm asking them to stop, but also make sure that when possible, that that explanation involves, um, you know, how that behavior affects other people so that you're always kind of trying to tie what your kids are doing and how they're behaving with the world as a whole. And so that they understand like they are, you know, one person in this big community of people, or maybe just within your family, if, if that's where you are, um, and that what they're doing affects other people. Um, and, and so that they should be considering other people as they're making choices. And I think the more, and actually the research suggests, the more that we do this, the more compassionate and empathetic and kind our kids become, because they just start, it starts to become more second nature to think of others when you're making decisions about yourself. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I know, fellow parents, it's not always easy. You know, you step on a Lego, it hurts. You're like, clean these up or I'm going to throw them away, right? So, and that's going to happen. Don't beat yourself up too much for the times that you just uh, react rather than respond. But if if we can just try to remember to take an extra 15 seconds to explain the next part of the issue, which is, you know, the why. Why should I clean it up? Well, because you're part of the family. And having a clean house makes me feel more relaxed as your dad. And when I feel more relaxed, I'm happier, I'm more effective. And yeah, I don't expect a five-year-old to necessarily fully get that. But, you know, by the time they're 10 years old, like you said, making it a habit to take a little more time to explain things to our kids will have a huge impact on their ability to to empathize and to think for themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. I really like it. And I do know that it's it's been one of my big struggles as a parent is to just take that extra time consistently. Uh, it's not always easy because I don't even always have the rest. I'm like, I don't, I don't know why I'm, I'm frazzled, right? Like, well, why should you do that? I know there's a really good reason. Yeah, but, but in the present state of mind I'm in right now, it's a lot easier for me just to say, because I told you to. Most of us remember what it was like to be a kid. And you remember when, when parents and teachers said, because I told you to, and how much that just bugged you and how disrespectful it was. And it created a little barrier right then and there right? You don't see me. So I'm not going to see you. So it's important that we try to take that extra time. Okay. Uh, let's change gears real quick. I want to change gears real quick uh, to your book title. It's obviously a great book title. It's why somebody uh, sent it to me, uh, a super nice club member. Uh, but it's also slightly polarizing, right? Um, we live in a world, and I think the book is mostly geared towards United States, right? North America. Just in terms of Race issues are really huge here in ways that they aren't necessarily in every country. And although no kid in any part of the world grows up colorblind, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but we live in a world where curse words still face, I'm going to say it, you know, puritanical judgment. But assholes as a word is kind of funny. It's kind of cute. It's often very apt. Do you agree or disagree that curse words can be used in the fight for a nicer world. <laughs> well, of course, I agree that curse words can be used in the fight for a nicer world. Um, yes, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, I knew full well 
picking this book title that I was going to make people angry and that some people were going to say things like, well, the, the word asshole is part of the problem. Like, this is why the world's going to hell in a handbasket is because people are using the word assholes as you know, book titles. And so I, I was prepared for that. Um, and I had a lot of conversations with my editor um, uh, at the publisher about, you know, is it is it going to be ultimately good or bad for the book if it has this word in it? And we went back and forth and then we were like, well, it'll certainly be memorable. And some people are going to think it's funny. And it's also... You know, I found the word to be just really evocative of a certain kind of person. Like you'd say the word asshole and you you know what that means, right? And I tried to think of alternate words and nothing else really captured what I was getting at. You know, I, I was I was like, how to raise kids who aren't jerks. It's just not, it just doesn't quite get that. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't capture what I'm trying to capture. So um, uh, yeah, and I mean, and uh, there have been uh, morning shows that will not have me on to talk about the book because of the swear word. And so there's certainly been costs to choosing it as well. And yeah, the hate mail that I've been getting to from some, some people who are very up in arms. Um, but I do feel like, uh, you know, swear words are separate from morality and goodness and kindness. You know, um, I just wrote about it in my newsletter, actually kind of trying to unpack, like, what is the history of, of, our hatred for bad language and our concern about bad, bad language. Is it, is it really rooted in, you know, being a good person or is it something else? And I found, well, actually it really came, came about like our modern day um, offense at bad language came out of late 17th century England where the modern middle class was born and the middle class was trying to figure out a way to distinguish itself from the working class and it decided that bad language would be a very clear barrier that the middle class would not use bad words and the working class did and so this was their way of saying okay we can distinguish between these two we're better than the working class um you know and and so then they they said yes it is absolutely a moral thing but it was not it was just it was just a way to make themselves, you know, feel more important, essentially. Um, and and these words, they can have power. They can be used in ways that are unkind and, and, and can be used in discriminatory ways. There's lots of bad words that I think, you know, in and of themselves have a lot of power. But at the same time, a lot of the words on their own, like asshole or shit or whatever, um, they're they're emotive. You know, they're, they're a way to... Um, to express yourself, uh, and they don't have to be unkind. When you you know drop something on your foot and you say shit, like that's you're you're not doing anything bad or unkind or immoral there. You're just expressing yourself in a, you know, in a colorful way. And I think that that is completely okay. And I also, as you know, because I've already said this, I think expressing emotions is actually very very healthy and very good to do as a parent. So that's kind of my take. Well, I agree, or you wouldn't be on the podcast, and it's come up with the Super Nice Club a few times because sometimes there will be content that has blue words, and folks will push back and say, hey, you kind of lost me there. You know, I was a member of the club, and I'm bouncing now because, you know, you said this word or that word, and I always respect that because, you know, they have an upbringing where that means so much more to them than it does for me. I'm, you know, like um, TV show, Ted Lasso, huge hit right now for, for Apple, Um and, you know, to me, what uh, Apple and some other companies do in the sweatshops that make their phones is so much more um, morally horrifying than any curse word could possibly be, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and we don't get so up in arms in that. We still buy the products left and right, you know. But we have a character on Ted Lasso called Roy Kent, and all he does is curse. 
And he's still, he's this gruff guy, but you clearly, people love him because they can tell that he has a heart of gold, you know, and right before he drops another F-bomb, or usually it's, he, he will, the writers have this set up to where he'll have a moment where he realizes that he needs to grow and be a forgiving human, and his face will freeze, and then he'll just grunt, and he'll just drop a huge F-bomb and turn away, and that's his, like, ah, I need to be a better person, you know? Uh, and it's pretty clever, the way they do it. Um, and the club, you know, we're open for sinners and saints. And, and you know, of course, everything in, in the States is framed in some sort of larger religious, you know, uh, framework because that's kind of so much of, of how our culture is, is uh, crafted. But, folks, I know that there is a way to express yourself without using curse words, but, but as Melinda said, they're just colorful and there are no replacements. This is why these words have power. This is why they're fun. Now, the difference is using a word to be hurtful. And because curse words can be more emotionally laden, they can be more powerfully hurtful sometimes. But I tell you, when I've been skewered verbally, sometimes in my life, most often, the most painful things I've heard have been without a curse, without a curse at all, because curse words are so, ultimately, they're pretty clunky that they, they don't go as deep, right, uh, as more incisive, insightful, specific character uh, references, you know, do. Anyway, we've covered enough about that. We both agree that it's okay to say assholes. And if you're listening to this, our most curse word filled podcast so far, I just want you to say... Say asshole out loud right now and tell me if it makes you feel like a less nice person. If it does, if it really honestly makes you feel less nice, contact me. Uh, let me know and uh, I'll send you something as an apology in the mail. I'll give you, I'll send you a little something, a little something from the club. All right. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, but you know, again, honor system. Let me know. Academic success versus emotional success. This is another great topic in here. We kind of focus a lot on the former not so much on the latter, right? I understand why, because, you know, kids need to have security, et cetera, et cetera. But what, what are the science-based strategies around this? Uh, what, what's the world telling us around the focus on academic success as a priority for kids? Yeah, I was surprised by what I uncovered. And I actually wasn't really in the book planning to get into this, but I found that I kind of had no choice. When I started looking at the research on self-esteem, um, which I wanted to do for this book because I felt like, you know, having healthy self-esteem is something that can help kids, you know, be happier, kinder people. You know, we, we know there's a lot of stuff that's claimed about self-esteem that isn't true, but we do know um, that having low self-esteem is a risk factor for, you know, all sorts of problems and, and emotional issues. And so I thought, okay, I really want to talk about self-esteem and what do we know about how to foster it? And what I was really surprised to find was just how much self-esteem is shaped by the pressure that we put on kids to succeed. And, you know, we are, it's so well-meaning. We are all very nervous and scared on behalf of our kids. It's so much harder to get into college now than it used to be. You know, financial success for our kids is more elusive than it was for us. You know, there are all these good reasons for us to be concerned. But when we are constantly pressuring our kids to get A's, to, you know, get on the best sports teams, to get the highest SAT scores, um, kids, unfortunately, can interpret that as us basically saying to them that our love for them is contingent upon what they do and how they perform and not just, you know, 
that our love for them is is completely you know non-contingent on anything that that it is um, unconditional um and when kids feel like our love is contingent, it is conditional, it really does depend on what they do, their self-esteem really suffers. Um, and then all sorts of other problems can kind of ensue from that low self-esteem. So, you know, there's so much research on this. I was pretty blown away by it. And I remember talking with people who were at first were very skeptical when I when I said this. And they said, this can't possibly be true that, that, that putting pressure on kids has this negative effect on their self-esteem, but it absolutely does. So that doesn't mean that we can't encourage our kids to do well in school. Of course, you know, we're all none of us are going to stop doing that. But I think we just need to be really, really careful about, first of all, always communicating our unconditional love, saying to our kids, look, you know, I want you to learn a lot in school, but I love you no matter what happens. I love you no matter who you are and what you do and kind of making sure that those messages come through regularly. Um, And then, yeah, you know, maybe not like paying our kids for good grades. That doesn't exactly send the best message, but instead, you know, encouraging like learning and growing their brain and stuff like that. Um, And so focusing more on the process rather than outcome can really be can really be helpful. It is. I feel the pressure. Um, I don't and never have put the pressure on my kids to be academically uh, first, you know, heck, I, uh, my oldest son, Justice, went to a Waldorf school for 10 years. I mean, that's, you can't get more inverted than that. Uh, and shocker, he ended up getting incredible grades when he went to public high school. I think that there is a lot to just raising kids who are curious and who are emotionally literate and who feel loved. And, you know, they're not going to end up being these passive wimps or, you know, kids who just... Uh, don't have the the strength and temerity to engage in the world. And I think there's kind of a fear that if we don't push our kids to be hyper competitive, that they won't be able to compete, right? Uh, and I, I really do get that. I really do. Uh, but um, as as people will say, you know, trust the process, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What and as far as that process goes, in your book, this is great. You have it laid out so well. You have strategies, and they're super useful. They're very clear. Um, you have things like uh, selflessness strategy, self-esteem strategy. Is there anti-racism strategy yep. or just not seeing colorblind? Yeah, anti-bullying strategy. You know, I'm probably, what am I missing here? <laughs> well, um, sibling rivalry, like um, yeah. how to get along with siblings strategies and stuff. Yeah, uh, there's. Yeah, and they're, they're great. I love this approach. It's very clear. It's always fun and funny. And you recap it really nicely at the end for quick reference, you know, so because as parents, sometimes we're just like, what am I supposed to? I don't, I, I just, there's just so much to remember about how to do this right. And we're afraid of getting it wrong, which we're not, we're going to get stuff wrong. And we're always going to feel guilty as parents. Just, mm-hmm. just know that if you're a new parent, I'm just going to tell you. You're going to feel guilty. That's just how it is. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to do cringeworthy things that you will regret always, even small things. Oh, yeah. Small things you'll remember, like barking your kid at the wrong moment. It's okay, though, folks. Seriously, you didn't screw your kid up. You know, you you didn't. But uh, Melinda really does a great job of organizing this book into strategies that you can take a look at around a topic that you're concerned with. Obviously, very few of us are going to be concerned that that all of our kids are racist bullies with no self-esteem who hate their brothers or sisters, right? It's probably one or two things in here that you have a concern around or you feel as a parent that you could use some guidance on or you just don't have any knowledge of. Um, and so that's that's worth it alone, right? And then as a result of all these things, 
I think you can kind of trust that your kid's probably going to be pretty rad at the thing that they're interested in in school. It might not be math. You may love math and your kid might get D's or C's in math and, you know, you're bummed, but they could be super into theater and a, and a genius at that thing, right? And they'll be capable of just crushing the things that they're the most interested in. When you can come at them as a parent that doesn't push them too darn hard. It's a tough world out there. We can't, we, we tend to think, well, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, throw that out the window because it's different now. I promise you it's different. And yes, I do promise it's, it's harder for them. Would you agree overall that it's harder for the kids right now, especially COVID times? Oh. I mean, come on, these kids, geez. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, I mean, they've been through so, so much. And especially like little kids, I mean, they've just gone through these huge shifts in their whole entire sense of reality over the past two years, you know? I mean, it's just, it's it's gotta be so hard, but I've been so impressed by how like flexible and resilient kids have been too, you know? I mean, certainly there are kids struggling, but uh, I've also been very impressed by how well my own kids like handled certain aspects of this, you know, that I thought like, oh, that they're never going to survive this. And then they were okay. It's, yeah, it's been a ride. <laughs> it's been interesting. You know what I love? I love is that so many parents talk to other parents about how to parent. I see, I see that as a really cool sign. I see that as one of the most hopeful things. I mean, Super Nice Club is, it's what I do 24 seven. And one of the most hopeful signs that I see is parents really giving a damn. You know, and parents really focusing on on how to be better parents. And yeah, we're all dogmatic and yeah, we're all inflexible around certain things. But on the whole, it really gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, same here. Same here. Parents are so invested now. Um, And, you know, there's some things that I think are are less constructive about that. Sometimes we're a little too protective of our kids. And I talk about that in the book, too. I'm not talking about helicopter parenting. Yeah. Right. But, but, but yes, but there's so, but we care so much and, and just, you know, the fact that there's been interest in this book shows that there's a lot of parents who want to raise good human beings and want to figure out the best way to do this. And, you know, or it's been really uplifting to go through this process of writing this book and then deal, you know, and having the reactions I've had, it just makes me think there's a lot of parents out there who are really working hard and really care about their kids and love them. And it's great. (laughs) I have a super nice club uh, insider question for you. Okay. The question is, what if someone else's kid is an asshole? Mm. Can I tell them? Should I tell them? How do I tell them? I've had to do this before, by the way, but um, give help us out here. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I want to hear what you did, but... <laughs> um, Too long of a story, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's so hard, and it's so hard to answer generally because... Um, it kind of depends on what the situation is. It like, you know, is it that your kid is friends with this other kid who's kind of an asshole and you're worried about the influence that kid's going to have on your kid? Or is the kid, you know, bullying your kid and, and they're not friends? I mean, it, it really kind of depends. Um, I guess I can give like a couple of thoughts on this. I mean, I think if you have a kid in your home, like you're hosting a play date and that kid is being a total asshole, that you can absolutely set limits and have conversations with them, you know, just like you would with your own child about what's nice and what's not and what's acceptable. And if you have house rules, like if your, you know, kid's breaking a house rule, they're calling your your kid names, you can say like, you know what, we we actually have a rule in our house that that's not okay. And, um, you know, and, and I need you to follow it or else we're going to have to end the play date early. You can absolutely set limits on other kids' behavior, you know, when they're over, when they're in your house um, uh, and, and stuff like that. And I think, I think 
the tough part comes when it's like your kid is friends with someone and you don't really like some of their behavior. And then it becomes tricky because the minute that you start to insinuate to your kid that you don't want them to be friends with that other kid, <laughs> they're going to push back, right? They're going to they're gonna be like, well, yeah. now I really want to be friends with this guy. So that's where sometimes I think we have to kind of keep be a little more hands-off and recognize that like our kids need to learn lessons about friendship and they need to learn, so, you know, social learning stuff for themselves. And, you know, some kids will end up being friends with an asshole for a little while and then, and then, you know, themselves kind of go through the process of recognizing actually, you know, I don't like spending time with that person. And we just sometimes have to like, let that play out on its own and getting involved can Mm. sometimes just get, make things worse. Um, So I think it, 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 it depends on, on the situation, but I think absolutely if you're, if you're, if you have a kid in your, in your jurisdiction who is being an asshole, then you can absolutely talk to them and have conversations about how their behavior or what they're doing is, you know, in your view, not acceptable or unkind or whatever. Do you think that it's better to go to the kid directly or to go to the parent? Would some parents be offended if you talk to the kid without talking to them? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I think it also is very hard sometimes to go to parents um, because parents will be sometimes very defensive. It, it depends on, I think, your relationship with the parent. If it's a parent you know mm-hmm. and you feel like, you know, you can have a conversation with um, and, and you can do it in a way where you're calm and you're able to say, like, look, I know every situation has, you know, multiple perspectives, every, you know, every, there's two sides to every story. But, like, here's something that I'm seeing and I'd like to talk to you about, you know, what we can do to help the kids get along, stuff like that. Yes, it, it might work to go to the parents if you really think, you know, you're going to be able to have a constructive conversation. If, on the other hand, you don't know the parents or, um, you know, or you know the parents and you, you know they're going to be defensive, then sometimes it's just not going to work and it's going to make you angrier and make them angry and maybe make things worse. So I think you kind of have to rely on your instincts there. Um, but I also think it's okay to, you know, you don't have to check with a parent first before, before you know, talking to a child about their behavior. Um, and this is something that teachers have to do in school. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, if, oh, it's if, you're the, yeah. if you're the adult in charge, I don't think there's any reason that you can't say, look, you know, I don't, I don't really like the way you're talking to my son or, you know, or whatever it is. If it's something that feels unacceptable, then it's okay to, to step in. It's also good to have, you know, encourage your child though, to stand up for themselves and say, Hey, you know, do you want to say something to him or if he's doing this, what could you say? Like give them, give them strategies too to handle the situation. If, you know, if they are struggling with a friend being unkind to help them walk through the different ways that, you know, they could deal with it. Absolutely. And so folks, if, if you have that situation going on right now and you talk to a kid or a parent and it doesn't go well, just um, throw Melinda under the bus. (laughs) Say, Hey, I read this book. I listened to this podcast. This was the advice. It was clearly terrible. I mean, look at the title of this book. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, and that should reset things. I was that kid. I was the asshole kid that the parent had to come talk to my mom. When I was uh, 11 years old, living in Redding, California, our next door neighbors, I was really into Dungeons and Dragons, right? And they were a highly religious, I don't know what type of Baptist, but Baptist family. And so my next door neighbor, who was my really good friend, we played a lot of baseball together, couldn't play with me um, unless I got saved uh, into the Baptist church. And, you know, and (laughs) I don't know how that conversation went with my mom, but, you know, I was growing up in a Catholic, Jewish, atheist household. And uh, so what happened is um, my my buddy Doug's sister came over and she saved me while I was playing uh, pachinko. 
uh, upstairs. I was playing Pachico and I just had to repeat after her and accept Jesus into my heart or whatever it was that she said. And then once that was done, we could play together again. Mm-hmm. And we and he played Dungeons and Dragons with us. Yeah. So these things are solvable. Even big things like, you know, religious schisms, you know, between families. You just send the older sister over and have the kid repeat some magic words. And now we can get to like killing demons together uh, in Dungeons and Dragons. It was big learning lesson uh, to me about religion. I ended up getting a degree in um, comparative religions wow. later on. So maybe, maybe it started there. Wow. I, you know what? I had, a, I had a parent have to call my mom when I was in second grade too, uh, because I had this like ridiculous crush on a kid and my friends and I were prank calling him. Um, like we would call and, and like ask for him and then hang up. I can't remember. Um, and you know, it, it, just to go back to the theory of mind thing at that point, like I had no idea that this would be like annoying and potentially hurtful. Like to me, to my friend and I, we were doing it together, but like, we thought it was hilarious. And we were like, everybody's having fun. This is so great. And then the mom called my mom and was like, your daughter is prank calling my son. And she had words with me and was like, you know, you can't do this. And here's why. And you know, it's, it's really disruptive to call over and over again. And also like laughing and hanging up on people is not nice. And, and I was like, Oh, my God, And I was mortified. And I never did it again. And but I, I kind of just like hadn't put together I was in second grade to hadn't put together like, what that does to somebody to, to, be prank called. And so that was definitely prank a learning calling. moment for me too. Yeah. I think that's kind of gone, isn't it? With mobile phones, prank calling is uh, a thing in a past. Yeah. Can't call the local grocery store or whatever and, and do the prank calls. Well, we, we prank called like mad. <laughs> we would have these carry on these long conversations pretending that we were like long lost cousins or whatever it was. We just thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not a cool thing to do. It's not a kind thing to do. But I, I got to think, you know, I was thinking about this podcast, getting ready for it, like this this future where we have these genetically optimized kids and cyber humans that, you know, they'll all be perfectly studious and, and harmonious little gems. And that just sounded kind of terrible to me, you know, because of the isn't there some sort of beauty built into these imperfections? And like, I know that when I my kid... Uh, one in particular, um, I won't name you, son. You may know who you are, although you're very young and you might be the youngest. So many lessons I learned about myself in the challenges that, that he brings up, you know, and the challenges that we have to go through, um, co-parenting and, and working with this kid. Um, I kind of worry a little bit about the tendency for adults to be afraid of doing the work and afraid of the parenting challenges, right? Yeah. And just wanting to, and I mean, of course, wanting to read a book to, to fix it, but also wanting to do more drastic things just to be done with it. Because we as parents are also so beset by challenges. More and more of us are working check to check than ever before. If you're 30 now, you're making less money than your parents did. It is harder for parents too. Let's, let's be real. So the tendency to be overwhelmed by the challenges of parenting, I just, I see it out there a lot, which is probably why we're talking so much about parenting to one another. I guess my long-winded spiel, what I'm getting at is that I love the challenge of it too. It makes me a better person seeing what my kids are going through and having to figure it out and unpack it. Uh, That is one of the most rewarding parts of being a parent. Yeah, yeah. 
I know. I feel like I'm always learning and growing as a parent based on, you know, what my kids bring to me and, and what and what they're doing and the challenges that, you know, that I'm facing through them in a way. Yeah. It's it's tough. It is tough. Yes. And gorgeous. Another member question, Mike C from Clear Lake. You'll love this question, by the way. You're going to love this question. This is going to make your day. Mike C says, and I didn't set him up. This is the real deal. I'm not a parent, but I do have a question. How can we get this book into every parent's hands? <laughs> Sounds like it should be mandatory reading and it should leave the hospital with every new baby. And again, I agree. I think that the fast path to a 10% nicer world is to have well-raised kids you know, that won't end up shooting anti-brutality protesters in Wisconsin, for example. How do we do it? How do we help you get this book out there? <laughs> Melinda, come on. Well. Let's cut to the sales part. Yes, yes. You can buy my book at any bookstore. Um, Amazon, independent bookstores I'm partial to. But um, there's an audio book. IndieBound, folks. Yeah, IndieBound, um, Bookshop. Those are both great. Um yeah, there's an audiobook as well. And you can actually buy audiobooks through independent bookstores through Libro FM, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. There, Yeah, so, I mean, please tell all your friends and give it out as, uh, as Christmas and um, Hanukkah presents and birthday presents and especially baby showers. I think it'll be a perfect baby shower book. Because <laughs> here's what I'm realizing is that if you give it to somebody who already has kids, then they're like, oh, are you saying that my kid is an asshole? But if you give it to somebody before mm-hmm. they give birth, then it's like, this is just, you know, make sure that your kid doesn't become an asshole. And then it's not as offensive. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I, or just say, hey, you you know you are an asshole, right, totally. Steve? So this book is, you know, genetics, right? You kind of need yeah. it. And a lot, of, a lot of our friends would get that and laugh at that. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, yeah, I'm doing... I'm, I'm doing what I can to get the word out, but I, I need help. I need lots of help. There's, it turns out there's a lot of people in the world, um, and I don't know how to reach every single one of them. So. <laughs> there are a lot of people in the world. Okay, so folks, listen, if you know any parents, if you can send this podcast to one of those parents, that's it. That's the challenge. Just, just push this on. Say, hey, I know you're a parent, and sometimes, you know, little Lucy is a pain. Here's a podcast that, that might address a couple of these things. Send it to one of them. And remember, also, money back guarantee. If you buy the book, you don't like it. If you gift it to a friend and they're like, you're such a jerk for sending this to me, reach out to me. We'll buy it back from you. And we'll find a parent in the Super Nice Club who would like this book to read it so it will not go to waste. It's uh, repurposing, even better than recycling. Much better, as a matter of fact. All right. This is the part of the podcast where we have the... And there's so much we're not covering here, folks. There's so much. I really want to get into um, emotional literacy that's, we talked about it a little bit early on, but there's so much more to that. You know what? I'm going li- to, I'm rambling. I like to ramble. I'm caffeinated. I want to give a shout out real quick to one of our very first podcast guests, um, William Butala. He's a, he's a very young man. Uh, he runs an art center at the Nakavali Refugee Center in Uganda. He's a refugee himself. Uh, and he works with kids all the time coming into this refugee center from all around, uh, mostly the Congo area. He learned early on himself how important it was for him to teach emotional literacy, how important it was for him to teach body language as part of that emotional literacy to these kids who, when I say they've gone through hell, I mean they've gone through hell on earth. He figured it out on his own, okay? But the U.S. school systems remain pretty damned ignorant around these things. 
Melinda, why is that, you think? Is there a push? Is there a movement to get emotional literacy? Because it is in some curriculums in other parts of the world. It's part of a recognized part of what is important for kids to learn. Where Where's the hang-up here? Gosh, I... I... I wish I knew. There, there is a push. There is a growing recognition, I will say, especially in the research community, that social emotional learning programs, um, SEL programs for short, um, do a lot of good in schools. That they are actually some of them are more effective than the than anti-bullying programs at preventing bullying. Because again, as I was saying, so much of bullying is sort of a, a lack of social emotional learning and awareness. And so these these programs that are really teaching these skills and teaching emotional literacy do so much good and actually too are tied with higher test scores. So in schools where kids get SEL um, uh, training, um, the kids do better in school too. And so, you know, it just kind of, it's all linked together. You know, you've got to have like a cohesive school and happy kids in order to learn. So I think slowly word is getting out that these are very helpful, but I will say, you know, I've seen, um, I've seen recently like the, the fear uh, over critical race theory is getting tied in with social emotional learning now I'm seeing in some circles where there's like, oh no, like we now they're teaching kids, you know, all this um, like feeling stuff that's so stupid. And, and so I, I do see there's some weird like political pushback to the concept of social emotional learning, which is just insane to me, but it is what it is. Um, so we, I think we are going to have to fight against just these ideas about it being something that it isn't too. But I am seeing there's growing support in like the educational community, I think, for these programs and recognizing they're very useful. Would you think that most, and you may not know, but would you think that most principals of public education, public schools um, are aware of SEL? Even if they don't implement it, do you think they're aware of it? So yeah. as a parent, is it something where we could go to our schools and say, and just have a, just say, hey, or just an email, any thoughts on developing SEL within our school? Has that been brought up? You know, instead of making a demand, which can put off some principals who either may not really get it, don't know anything about it, just asking an open question, thoughts on SEL, is it on the radar at my school? It's a great idea. Do you think that is something that could be helpful? Yes, I do. I think that's a great idea. There's also, um, you can even point them to a website that's like full of information about the research on SEL and, and it's called um, castle.org at C-A-S-E-L.org. Um, so that's something that has like tons of information about um, social emotional learning and the benefits and the research behind it. Um, I've used that. I've gone there a lot to learn more about it. Um, so yes, please. I think that would be fantastic because if principals and superintendents aren't aware of these programs, they really, really should be um, because they can make a world of difference in schools. There's another challenge, folks. Pen a little letter or, you know, next time you drop uh, your kid off at school, just ask and do it in a charming, disarming way. Like, I don't know much about this SEL stuff myself, but I heard on this podcast that maybe it'd make my kid a little happier. What do you think? I mean, you know, just it doesn't have to be combative. And I think that that uh, uh, principals and administrators and teachers are beset by so many criticisms that they can probably be a little defensive. So let's let's try to be a little extra kind to these folks because um, our kids are spending a ton of time with them and they're in no-win situations a lot of the times, all right? All right, one of my favorite parts of this podcast, it's brand new, you're the only second one now, is the um, 
latest Instagram post segment where we go to the the guest's Instagram page <laughs> and take a look at the latest post. Oh, no. <laughs> and we talk about it. No, this is great. This gives you so much credit. You don't, I don't understand. Even know what my so, one was. Oh, you'll remember real quick. So, Instagram slash Melinda W. Moyer, M O Y E R. Yes. It's a picture of Melinda and her husband walking in a beautiful place. She's in a wedding dress. He's in a sweet suit. She's carrying a bouquet of white flowers. And it says, 12 years married to my love. It's an adventure every day and one I wouldn't want to be having with anyone else. Red heart emoji. Congratulations. That was yesterday. Yes. So was yesterday your 12-year um, anniversary? Actually, you know what? It was uh, Sunday. It was Sunday. And yes, Sunday was our 12-year anniversary. I know. Which I actually thought was our 11-year anniversary. And then my husband had to correct me. So He's like, actually 12. Whoops. He's like, yeah, it's been 12 years. Um, yes. Oh, congratulations. For real. That is a heck of an achievement. And it's just great to see you celebrating it with pride and with love. Congratulations to you both. That's what a great thing. And if you're going to write a book about parenting, you can manage to to become part of the minority, making it to 12 years in a marriage. I, I really believe that gives you some some extra chops and, and authority when it comes to writing a book on parenting. Don't you guys agree? Well, thank you. Yes, we do. Okay. <laughs> it's not live, but I, I heard everybody in the future um, responding. All right. Last part of the podcast. Very last part. This is the part where you get to ask me a question. You get to ask. You get to be the host. One question, any question. Oh, well, I have to say, when I first got an email from you, I my, my question that came to my mind was, wow, is his name really Todd Brilliant? Because that is like the most amazing name. Just like, I don't know. It just seemed like brilliant as a last name. It was so cool. Is that really your name? It really, it really, it really <laughs> okay. is. My full name is is Todd Edwin Sorum Brilliant. I've wow. got a lot of names. Wow. My my oldest kid has an even longer name, Justice Masaru North Sorum Brilliant. Wow. So we're just a name family. Awesome. Yeah, we, we put a lot of history and stories in, in the names and things like that. So yeah, it seems like, especially since I moved to LA, it just feels more like a stage name. You know, everybody's <laughs> right. got like, I was their wondering, stage like, name. Is it real yeah. or not? Uh, down here like, ah. Oh. That is yeah. so cool. Okay. Sorry, that um, wasn't, a, that was like yeah, a weird so question. Cool. But I, it's what, that was like the first question I had about you when I got your, when I heard from you. I was like, is that his real name? Because that's So amazing. was that the question? <laughs> I mean, that was the question? That, I guess that was. Okay, that was. <laughs> I don't know. That was the question. Wait, uh, well, I also want to know, okay, you, how, how old are your kids? Because I know you have three, right? You said. I do. My oldest is Justice. He's 18, just started college up in Oregon, Eugene. And then I have an 11-year-old, Archer, and a nine-year-old, and his name is Ryerson, or Rye for short. Well, cool. Uh, we, we dipped in a little bit to How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens by Melinda Wenner Moyer. We just dipped in a little bit though, folks. This is a good read. It's an easy read. It's packed with info, but it's also just very relatable. You can hear Melinda. You can hear a fellow parent in the writing. Uh, and that's good writing. That's approachable writing. I can only assume that your science writing, the reason why you are adored in the science writing community is because it's also pretty approachable. I maybe, I don't know, you know, different. It, it really depends on the publication you're writing for how like how kind of personal and approachable you can be. But I try whenever I can. What's next? Do you have a, a, another book on the horizon, something more science-y, or what's, what's the next I thing? I don't know. There doesn't have to be a next thing. Yeah, you yeah. know, I want to write another yeah. book because this was really fun, um, but I don't know what it will be. I mean, for now, I'm putting a lot into my newsletter, 
Um, and I've just kind of expanded it and publishing more regularly. So, um, so that's going to be, that's going to be fun. We're going to see how that goes, but yeah, I don't know beyond that what I'm doing. Okay. Well, I like it. I like what you're doing so far. Welcome to the Super Nice Club. (laughs) Thank you. Our newest member. Uh, Really glad to have you. Really, really glad to have you. And thank you for your book. Uh, Thank you for putting yourself into it. We we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This was wonderful. So there you have it, folks. A super nice conversation with super nice Melinda Wenner Moyer. Now you know everything you need to do to raise a super nice child, right? Uh, If you feel like maybe you could still use some tips, I highly recommend picking up Melinda's book. Again, guaranteed. Super nice guarantee on that one. Hey, if you really dig Melinda like I do, uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned next week for her challenge. She issues a Be Nice Challenge. And in that Be Nice Challenge, there are a couple things you can do. One, you can do the challenge just to be a nicer person. Uh, Secondly, you you can maybe even win a copy of the book. So next week... If you're listening to this on time, in real time, that will be Melinda's Be Nice Challenge. All right, that's it. Hope you liked the podcast. Hope you liked the new theme song. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. If you know one single person, one, just one, who might enjoy this podcast, will you please be super nice and forward it to them? Um, And do subscribe. Click that subscribe button wherever you find it just to to make that happen. If you want to review the podcast, that would be super killer too. Yeah, I think Apple is the main place where you can record reviews. Until next week, everyone, stay nice. Don't
So what? Big deal. 